the greatness of Caravaggio, the greatness of Shakespeare, the greatness of, uh, of all the geniuses and masters of the arts is that they are able to, uh, to launch messages that overcome time. On the ban of effeminate men yeah. and how fashion industry... I'm fucked. In fact. Okay. I am fucked. You are. <laughs> yeah, because they're going to rule the world very soon and I'm going to be banned. Regardless of how successful, well-known, well-established you could be and you could be very far away in your career, it does not guarantee you enduring success in a stable position. The real problem for me, and I want to know um, what you think about this, the real problem is that this... Actually, I need some lipstick. One second, not lipstick, some Vaseline, one second. <laughs> that you will reach diversity as a side effect, a marvelous, beautiful side effect, if you will judge based on merit. Because merit will select the best, it will not select the privileged. Amazing, right? With this, we have to book an appointment to try some underwear. Oh, really? <laughs> but yeah. I buy only cheap underwear. Well, well, Jeff, Whenever yeah. I use it, not very often. Sociologists came to the conclusion that there is only one difference between a genius and a fool. That the genius has followers, the fool doesn't. What about I'm good at my job? What about at that? Seriously. I mean, I, I, it's very funny. A friend of mine was sending me... You don't me have to be good anymore. You, you don't have to be You, you have, have to, to be identify. Gay. You don't have to be good. You have to be either a woman or homosexual. They tried to bring some sort of a moral lesson uh, to us. I think it cancels the actual joy of going and seeing art and enjoying any element of our culture. So... Here we go. Hello, hello, hello. Shall we go through the list of themes for today? Sure. How we're going to entertain ourselves and our listeners. We're going to start with the biggest theme, which I guess shocked or maybe intrigued everyone in the world with Bottega Veneta having oh. a new creative director. Yes. Actually, when I received the news of Bottega Veneta's uh, director leaving, I was with you recording. It's just when we recorded yeah. our first episode, yeah. When we will speak about the latest rise of brand collaborations and the increasing number of successful stories which seem to be taking fashion, an idea of a brand, to a very different um, direction yes, from what it used yes. to be originally, will uh, reflect on the recent exhibition of Hogarth and Europe at Tate Britain, which is currently on. And we will wrap up with a little chat about latest developments in Chinese government rule and specifically on the ban of effeminate men yeah. and how fashion industry... I'm fucked. In fact. Okay. I am fucked. You are. <laughs> yeah, because they're going to rule the world very soon and I'm going to be banned. <laughs> oh, uh, I think it makes two of us. All right. Yes. Well, yeah. shall we begin? Yes. So, big news. Well, Bottega Veneta has been super, super successful brand over the past years. The amount of this sort of a pleated uh, baton... Ha I mean, not exactly baton, but with square handbag 
all women around London been carrying around is inescapable. It's everywhere. Yes. And generally, the whole new aesthetic, very branding, everything from logos to silhouettes, everyone has been replicating it. What Daniel Lee has done, he really turned the brand into something incredibly recognizable beyond handbags. Because if we look back 10 years ago, the brand was all about this sort of a pleated signature style handbags women in West London would carry around. But it had never been such a fashion statement and at the forefront yeah, of directing because the trends. Because it, it, it was aiming to be a uh, rather than a fashion statement a style statement so the whole experiment of Bottega Veneta since it, it was invented I think in 1967 uh, thanks to Renzo Zengiaro and uh, and uh, another man so two uh, entrepreneurs joined and created this amazing uh, brand um, that created handbags essentially uh, and then they sold the company. The brand has appeared in memorable movies like American Gigolo. It was worn by Lauren Hatton. It was a very, very uh, prominent brand. Then it had a very bad moment in the 90s. And since uh, since Caring rescued the brand, which was about to fail for bankruptcy, uh, they have... Mm, always wanted to empower the uh, outstanding manufacturer of the of the bags and the leather products so they didn't want to be a fashion brand they wanted to be the epitome of understatement and luxury within the big house of gucci so that gucci would be the fashion brand and bottega the luxury brand so keeping it small was actually part of the strategy because you cannot be big if you are if you are luxury so uh, and this uh, is the idea that Thomas Meyer was following. So uh, doing something, as you said, very understated for a woman that was not, it was sort of a younger version of her mess, a woman that was not as mature, but also not as young. And then what you said uh, with Daniel Lee, who really gave a different character to the brand. Yeah, it almost became a super cool brand. And on one hand, it set a lot of trends and a lot of sort of shapes and designs and colors. But secondly, it also became a signifier of being aware of a fashion. It almost, in a way, I guess, turned into a little version of a Prada being this uh, particular segment in the market, yeah. which Prada is well exactly. known to be from. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's very, it, it remained Milanese in its core in many ways, which is like Prada, like Jill Sander, sort of, the sort of cipher of, of Milan. Uh, also, I think the great intuition of Caring and of the CEO uh, is that at, at the moment in which, when they hired uh, Daniel Lee, Daniel Lee was coming from Phoebe Philo's um, team at Celine, and Celine lost its uh, sort of its path because when uh, Sliman went at Celine, he brought a completely different style. So Celine, the the uh, Celine's clients were left without a brand, and they understood that there was a gap in the market and filled the gap by calling somebody from the team of uh, of um, of Phoebe Philo. And, cr and giving the market what the market was missing the most. And I think this was a very, very 
intelligent thing to do and and they did amazingly so this is why it's such a shock to hear what he's living the brand considering you would imagine someone who had managed to bring such a breath of fresh air new direction towards a brand which had nothing reflective of what it had become would secure his role and actually not not so much anymore we now have a new guy heading the house Matthew Plazy and probably his name came up in all the news I've been consuming more than anything over the last two weeks yes yeah, he was already a prominent name in fashion. He worked with uh, Margiela. He did something, actually, he worked at very high levels with Margiela, uh, Meso Margiela. Uh, when Martin Margiela left the house, he worked with, obviously, also with the team of Phoebe Philo at Celine, but also with Raf Simmons. Um, and this because we think that what the brand is going for, obviously, we will not know this until, until uh February, when the first collection designed by um, Mathieu will be out, and Mathieu Blasi, and but we know that it's pro what the brand is probably doing is that they are going for promote insider. Uh, aesthetic disruption, uh, sorry, aesthetic continuity. The same thing that uh, that mm -hmm. uh, Chanel did with Virginie Viard, so promoted the insider, or or the Alexander McQu uh, McQueen did with uh, Sarah, Sarah Burton, mm -hmm. so promoting the insider and keeping continuity because the brand doesn't need disruption at this point. However, my question is: the brand has always given us disruption throughout the latest collection, so maybe this is going to be the nth disruption. We oh, don't know yeah. that. I thought about this because the brand has been like they removed their Instagram account that was a big disruption uh, they have held uh, the uh, fashion shows uh, behind closed doors that was a disruption they have been doing it bags when nobody else was doing it bags that was also a disruption everybody was uh, sort of exploiting uh, shoes and trainers they went back to the it bags and one thing that is worthy of attention is the fact that when uh, the old bottega did not have a it bag like the other brands did meaning that they did have famous bags but their bags were unstructured and without logos now all the it bags think about the the uh, baguette by fendi okay structured and with a the logo they follow the opposite formula so this has been also disrupted by the latest uh, evolutions of the brand so probably that's going to be interesting but i do think i do i tend to think that he's going to do a continuity rather than disruption. I think you're absolutely right, because I was reading an article and actually the brand uh, CEO, he said what the storyline and narrative and vision of brand just will be reestablished and continued. So that really um, the big question I have in mind. And you mentioned Alexander McQueen, Chanel. Yeah. Um, we're not really having designers replacing with prominent names who bring their own creative vision. They're just picking up whatever the direction has been set and continue executing it. And actually often on an incredibly safe level, nothing daring. Since Alexander McQueen is gone, I haven't really seen where Alexander McQueen we knew while he was heading the brand. So... Actually, I would wonder, is the idea of this 
incredible vision and unique ability to translate idea and visual output, which we present to creative directors to have, could be just be an illusion. Um, I think there is a difference there between the role of a stylista, in, uh, which is a, a word that does not really have a proper translation in English, uh, and uh, a creative director. Now, if somebody goes to a brand that they didn't create and is asked to innovate without changing it, keeping continuity, that is creative direction. But a stylista does not have the problem of heritage because usually he is the creator of the brand. So Alexander McQueen did not have to represent anybody's heritage because he was the creator of the brand. And when he went at Givenchy, they tried this experiment of Alexander McQueen as a creative director. It didn't really work. It didn't really function. He didn't stay. So there is a difference, I think, between people like McQueen and people like Galliano, who are pure creative directors, uh, good creative directors. So there is, a, yeah, I think there is a, a difference in, in the DNA and what makes them, um, in what makes them. So yes, this is one of the differences. But the real problem for me, and I want to know um, what you think about this, the real problem is that this, actually I need some lipstick. One second, not lipstick, some Vaseline, one second. Okay, Jepi. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> You live in me no, on my own. You, <laughs> you live in me alone. Same trick doesn't work twice. <laughs> I wanted to um I wanted to um to launch you uh, an idea. Now, I think that now in this conversation we have been speaking a lot about designers. We've been saying all oh, the designers are like this, creative directors are like that. But isn't this a fake narrative? Isn't the narrative that we are receiving from fashion just a fake narrative in the sense that they are presenting these creative directors as geniuses, as people who single-handedly push fashion ahead. And that is because uh, fashion needs to atone itself and to think that it's so, sort of almost like mimicking the structure of art. But isn't, does this situation not prove another point, namely that the creative director is a piece that the brand can actually supersede in favor of another piece. And the creative director is not necessary. And who is ultimately ruling and keeping uh, pushing the brand forward is the CEO of the company. Isn't the, this the demonstration that they made Daniel Lee when it was comfortable for them to make Daniel Lee? And within one year, Daniel Lee became the hottest designer in town. He won four awards at the British Fashion uh, Award. At the, yeah, at the British Fashion Award, he also won Best Designer. And then, as the brand made him, they unmade him. They just fired him. And I heard all sorts of stories about this, which I cannot repeat. But essentially, my point is, if Daniele was such a genius, if Daniele was such a savior, if Daniele was a such a unique uh, sort of uh, demiurgic or g godly figure, would, would, would it... So the story would have been different, I think. This is the demonstration that the real the narrative of the, of the genius designer is a fake narrative and the real narrative that nobody wants to talk about but is a true one is that actually brands are corporations and they go ahead if there is a good CEO behind. This reestablished the power of the CEO. 
Yeah, JP, I think, well, what is not fake, what is real in today's world? But absolutely, fashion is a business, as we know, and, well, the reality is something we know for sure, for a fact. It is turning more into corporate uh, structure, and all brands embracing, especially with big groups, the idea of what brand needs to function on hierarchical level, profit is a priority, and as an outcome of that, yes, everyone in this game becomes replaceable figures, and you can absolutely, through you know your smoke and mirrors, ambience, create this vision of a little um, creature who embraces the whole narrative and creates a beautiful product, creates this story which your consumers are buying. But in the end of the day, yes, absolutely. I think this highlighted to me more than anything the um, illusion of stability in the corporate world. And when, uh, off the record, we were talking about what else is happening in our culture, we were discussing second season of uh, Apple TV series, The Morning yeah. Show. Yeah, The Morning Show, yeah. Obviously, they have a specific storyline which is going into it. But again, what it highlights really well beyond Me Too movement on which the plot is focused is also what regardless of how successful, well-known, well-established you could be and you could be very far away in your career, it does not guarantee you enduring success in a stable position. Things shift and it's all about the narrative, the profit, and what is the best decision for, like you said, for the brand director to make. And if it requires to get a new creative director, so be it. And exactly this is no, what... No, but that's the whole point. It's not if it requires, because it didn't require a new creative director. The brand is the only brand who grew when everybody else was losing. So it increases profits during pandemic when everybody else was losing. So it didn't require it from a profit point of view. The, clearly, there must oh, be a different, yeah. a different reason, of course. Probably. But uh, no, one thing you caught there, and I totally agree with, which applies to Morning Show as well, which is uh, the fact that we now live in a situation, uh, mainly thanks to young people who very often uh, complain about things that they don't fully understand uh, and oftentimes complain about things that they do understand. So it's a, it's a very complicated situation. But we live in a time that, to some extent, mirrors the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, the closer you were to, uh, to being the uh, emperor, the more your life was in danger. So your life was safer if you were not in power. The more in power you were, the more likely you were to be killed. So here we are in the same situation. Uh, the people in power are the ones who are more likely to uh, get their heads chopped. Yeah, I mean, we all know it very well from French Revolution times. Yes. Uh, but yeah, there is no real revolution happening. I guess this is no, exactly. exactly. This is this is the point. Um, Creative director does not symbolize ultimate brand vision. 
it has been turned into another figure in a corporate game really and this is symbolizing it like doesn't matter is it daniel is it matthew whoever is doing this role they will be able to continue so is the idea of creative visionary just an illusion in all this big corporate uh, yeah exactly exactly i read uh, a long time ago i read some studies on social some sociological studies that try to understand what the difference is in a society between this is a little bit of topic but it's interesting uh, what the difference is between genius and uh, and fool and essentially some uh, sociologists came to the conclusion that there is only one difference between a genius and a fool that the genius has followers the fool doesn't it's not the quality of what they do that differs but is just the fact that one is uh, uploaded by a crowd and the other one isn't and it is very easy for tables to be turned oh yes absolutely Oh, well, well, I mean, speaking of uh, new innovative concepts and switching roles, the race of brand collaborations is super prominent and it's getting to the wide spectrum of high street brands collaborating with luxury brands, which we have seen maybe for many years with brands such as H&M and different luxury houses. We see it with high streets such as Nike, sportswear, collaborating with luxury. But uh, lately, it has been taken, I guess, to sort of a new dimension of this spectrum with brands uh, collaborating with each other, which you would assume to have similar customer profiles. Something from the recent ones was um, Balenciaga and Gucci. And even though this collaboration, which specifically caught my attention, could be a mix of high street and luxury, but still I would say um, it's probably premium uh, underwear on the market segment. So it's Skims, Kim Kardashian underwear brand, and Fendi, Italian luxury designer brand. You know, Skims is priced as a premium underwear like it's not it's probably not the most expensive it's not la perla but it's definitely not your h&m underwear not your uniqlo underwear so essentially it's very interesting how brands which have completely different backgrounds probably even um sort of a brand identity and the way we visually communicate yeah think about supreme and louis vuitton yeah very different they managed to find some common ground and present their latest product and evidently from specific schemes and Fendi, it's been super successful. I guess we also communicated super well. Online, it has been uh, presented as a unique experience. You had to join the queue, you have to book an appointment to try it in person. Amazing, right? These days, we have to book an appointment to try some underwear. Oh, really? But yeah, I buy only cheap underwear. Well, well, whenever I use it, not very often. Well, well, maybe, maybe you should uh, try to consider some schemes underwear for future. Maybe it will encourage you to buy it every day. If I have to make an effort, then La Paella would be. (laughs) (laughs) Schemes of Fendi. But yeah, I just uh, find it um, logically mind-boggling 
how brands which have nothing in common to begin with manage to become successful collaborations, but also what does it say about the whole business of building brand identity, creating some sort of a profile and visual narrative when it can absolutely be mixed and diminished in this collaboration? Yeah, and this, I think, I think I have an idea about why this happens. Now, first of all, uh, brands collaborations, as you mentioned, the most relevant ones, the Gucci and Balenciaga, although that is a very fakey collaboration because, I mean, in a way, because Fendi, uh, because Balenciaga and Gucci do belong to the same group, which is caring. Yeah. Whereas much more interesting was the collaboration between Versace and Fendi because they do not belong to the same, uh, to the same um, group. Also, uh, I think that the big... Um, sort of the big grandmothers of these collaborations uh, was when, even though it's not a real collaboration, but somehow it's related, is when Donatella Versace modeled for uh, Givenchy by Tishy. Do you remember that in 2015? She was uh, the uh, model in a campaign, in a Givenchy campaign. And that to me demonstrated what I believe about Donatella, that she is an extremely intelligent woman, uh, which is often underestimated. And she demonstrated she's not just Gianni's sister. She's much more than that. And she's so confident that she's not afraid of measuring herself and collaborating with other brands, because she is confident about what she does at Versace. Uh, and this is the first uh, thing because she also did the collaboration with Fendi where she really um, where she really demonstrated that she is confident in what she does. The second thing that I uh, think about collaborations is that it's sort of inscribed in a bigger picture which is that brands today tend to um, to do um, to pursue a path that is called self-disruption. Now think about uh, the first thing that does new does creative directors do when they go to a um, to a mm, brand to a new brand to, when they work with a new brand is either changing the logo t-shirt Barbary or changing the name of the brand Celine at uh, by Sliman uh, Sliman the first thing he did mm -hmm. he removed the the accent Saint from Laurent, the e. Saint Laurent he removed Eve and he only wrote Saint Laurent Barberies at some point became Barbary and also um, and also, uh, oh, Balmain introduced a new logo, a horrible logo, and I think, and, uh, and Maison Margiela, Martin Margiela became, Maison Martin Margiela became Maison Margiela. So this is what self-disruption is about, is giving the impression that you are not the old dusty brand, but giving of yourself the image of something dynamic that changes with time that is never the same you pretend to be new it's like those old ladies who get plus or, or, or old men who get plastic surgery uh, for looking younger um, but mm. but if if he succeeded if, if if the plastic surgery is successful you have the amazing beauty of share but if it's not successful you've got monsters so in some cases it succeeds in some cases uh, self-disruption doesn't and self-disruption is important today for brands because we moved away from the 60s 70s 80s and 
partly 90s idea of the total look, where you very recognizably had mm -hmm. to wear one single designer. You were either a Versace woman or an Armani woman. Okay, it's very famous, this gossip that nobody knows whether it's true or not, but Armani once said that he, re he was recalling uh, this uh, episode of Versace going to him and saying, the difference between us is that you dress sophisticated ladies, I dress whores. That's what he that's what apparently Versace said. Donatella says it's not tr true, but I, I don't know what. I <laughs> mean, these days no one would admit. Of course, these days no one. But it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because it captures the essence of total look. One was creating clothes for a sexually liberated woman, the other one was dressing women who did not find their liberation in sex but in work. So, and, and those women wanted to identify with one style. We are not there anymore. This is not the era of designers. This is the era of stylists. And your look should be created of differences, all put together. And that's exactly what you see in Balenciaga and Gucci. Sometimes the individual pieces don't even look like they are designed by the same designer. That's also a self-disruption thing. And that is because the way in which millennials and Z generation consume is very different from baby boomers. Baby boomers consumed, followed brands. Millennials and that generation don't follow a brand because of its name and prestige they follow values and therefore they want to they don't want to get attached to a single style so um, i think the collaborations disrupt the idea the monolithic idea of a brand and give this impression of variety and newness i also wonder if by collaborating and creating this illusion of newness because it's not really anything which is truly new but could it be this idea which perceived to be new creating different perception of actual brands once they're separated so suddenly uh, collaboration uh, becomes something illusionary like a possible vision and Always collaborations were very short-lived. Sometimes we even uh, get sold out in one day. So it almost feels like it never happened. And suddenly when you look at the brands separately, they feel more real because their story continues and collaboration is over. So maybe this is another way for brands to reestablish uh, their significance in the market for participating in the fleeting moments of participation. So I also thought maybe this helps brands to find their identity today, saying we are relevant, we, man we can reinvent ourselves, but we also stay true to our identity, yeah. even if it's completely made yeah. up. Yeah, that, that's very, very interesting, yes. Also, it was amazing, especially in Fendi and Versace, how the two brands, you could see both of them in the uh, collaboration. You could see uh, Fendi in Versace and Versace in Fendi. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, it was a very interesting experiment. A little bit less successful to me was the Balenciaga and Gucci because Gucci really went hardcore using Balenciaga, whereas I did not see that Balenciaga was really doing the same uh, with Gucci. Yeah, I think... It was uh, much more tame. But also both brands, they, like you said, they belong to the same group. Uh, to some extent, uh, they have an element of grotesque in both of them. So probably oh, yeah. it's very difficult to um, 
make very unique statement when both brands have such a vibrant character whereas when you collaborate with street style or maybe even i mean you mentioned fendi and versace yeah probably they both are quite bold as well but i think mostly collaborations they are between almost platforms or high street or maybe mass market and then other segments such as luxury maybe because they are so different it enables both of them to have a different level of output expression yeah. in uh, the clothing design and therefore it appeals to different consumer because suddenly brand which we consider to be traditional or old-fashioned or not innovative participates in something which is very very closely connected to different consumer market and when it suddenly pulls back because this collaboration is over super super limited it also probably creates the illusion of this exclusivity and uh, probably contemporary moment of us wanting to participate in whatever the latest and obviously it's ongoing narrative on fashion we want the latest we don't want anything that was relevant yesterday even today is already going by we want to be relevant tomorrow yeah and probably this uh moment of collaboration is actually the perfect embodiment of being relevant just for the current moment and tomorrow we have another collaboration so we don't have to really create anything enduring we just need to create moments which just enough to capture our attention for today and when we move on yeah yeah totally uh it's very interesting how um, i obviously agree completely with what you say but it's very interesting of to how even though brands want to be relevant today and they're living the moment and fashion is ultimately uh, ultimately about today is a radicalized idea of the present more than it is about the future fashion is about the present and the immediate future not the distant future uh, but notwithstanding this uh, brands are trapped in the past and that's the other reason why collaborations are the last resource because on the one hand they want to be relevant today on the other hand creatively speaking they don't know what to Event anymore. So collaborations are a new idea of introducing something new, innovative, without new rather than innovative, without having to create. I recently went and saw new exhibition at Tate Britain, Hogarth and Europe. This exhibition probably a little bit deceiving in its title to begin with. I actually noticed this is something Tate Britain is really good at. We had an um, exhibition of uh, Manet maybe three years ago, and actually there probably were like five or six Manet paintings, and everything else was sort of uh, his contemporaries, so other artists inspired by his work. So, William Hogarth is 18th century British painter who had a very specific segment of his work. Obviously, like any other painter at that time, he'd done a lot of portraiture because this is how painters would make money. But a lot of his work was satirical, uh, ironic commentary on the society values of that time and probably sort of a transgressive behaviors which let society know that in a way. But again, 
um, carefully uh, what I didn't realize the second uh, title of the exhibition saying Hogarth and the Europe meant with the paintings by many painters from Europe. And that was interesting. I guess it's nice to Sorry, see. Sorry, what do you mean? Uh, you mean that the, uh, um, together with Hogarth, they there were... There were like many, many more painters. Right, so it right, was, right. Because you would imagine that his solo exhibition from yeah, the way it's yeah. titled. And this is what Tate Britain does quite often. I think they lure you into buying a ticket thinking, ah, this is what I'm going to see, but actually, no, uh, it covers something else. Because I think last time we did Monet, it was something Monet in London. So, again, every time you see an exhibition title saying there's something else, well, uh, expect uh, it to be watered down by our artworks. Not that it's a bad thing. Maybe sometimes it's super handy to reflect on art, not only focusing on one artist, but on his contemporaries and other aspects of the moment when he was living. So what uh, puzzled me a little bit in this exhibition, more than the fact that it was not his solo exhibition, is the way it was curated and communicated. So the exhibition starts with general introduction to his work, and then saying what my actual exhibition aim is to analyze, show us the work, but also criticize it. And um, I do wonder, uh, is is the actual purpose of exhibition is to criticize, especially not contemporary art. This is art from 1700s. Uh, there's very little we can do to really change what was produced so many years ago. And when the exhibition progresses, obviously 18th century was time of immersed development of British Empire. And with all outcomes, yes, you will have uh, elements of uh, a lot of materials and art objects and lifestyle objects brought from all over the world, which are being used as decorative pieces in people who could afford it. And I guess, you know, like, just like today, a lot of things we buy probably made in China does not mean what we have very specific narrative which we communicate when we buy these objects. But I felt uh, exhibition was trying to emphasize uh, how much uh, great products, how many great products were brought to the British Empire as an outcome of... Um, um, the slavery trade and also trade of tobacco, sugar, tea, cotton, and anything else we could um, import and export. So, in a way, uh, I felt this whole exhibition did not focus on necessary, just showing us uh, the work of Hogarth or his contemporaries in 18th century, it was trying to give us a very, very specific moral lesson on how people used to live their life. And it's a bit ironic because Hogarth and I making these satirical comments in his work. And then at the same time, uh, Tate Britain as an art institution 
also making a lot of uh, moral comments. So I felt like I was being schooled a little bit on the ethics of 18th century. Which no, 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 no. That's the whole <laughs> point. If if that was the thing, it could have been a great thing. You were being lectured using the 17th century, the 18th century. You were being lectured about today's morality. That shouldn't be done. Well, but this so is the, f- this is the, the thing. That's the problem. Is projecting something? Is projecting our current morality onto the past? If yeah, if if it yeah. was if it was criticizing his work with uh, uh, inscribing it within the morals of, of his own time, then perfect, fine. That that could be something enlightening. The problem is when you apply today's morality to the past, expecting that the past had uh, and wondering. How is po- it possible that they didn't have the same values that we have today? So what if the future historians will judge us with the same criteria? That is terrible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is something which concerns me the most. Um, every time uh, I look in the past, even let's say 10 years ago, I think for all of us it is super easy to say, or like this is immoral or why would someone do it even if it's not a negative context we still judge it from modern perspective and in a way i believe to understand something from the past good or bad uh enlightening or just pure entertaining well it doesn't uh, one doesn't cancel another but we have to distance ourselves in a way from contemporary moment and almost project ourselves into the time in whichever event art fashion was produced and then try to understand how it would have been seen, understood and perceived by people who lived at the time when this was actually happening. And then... Even though we could find it challenging, because look, I guess it's very difficult to understand uh, completely what it was like to live in 18th century, but we can at least try to uh, picture ourselves in that time. And when looking at artwork, I'm not sure we necessarily always need to bring out moral judgments and critique. We it's never should. No, I'm not sure. We never should bring morality into judgment because that's not the point with art. Uh, you see, Caravaggio, one of the, arguably one of the people, one of the most important painters of all times, who had the misfortune of being born in a time in which, uh, in which uh, you know, the, the, with which we don't share many values. Okay, Caravaggio uh, was a terrible person. <laughs> by their own standards he was terrible because he was a homosexual by our standards he was terrible because he he killed a man okay so we are not judging whether Caravaggio was a morally a good person it doesn't matter because what he changed doesn't have anything to do with morality what he changed was a the he taught the world. He gave the world a new perspective on how to represent reality or how to represent things. That's the value. You should not look for values that he was not trying to, that he was not um, uh, conveying into his his work. So, uh, Lewis Carroll was a pedophile. 
Everybody knows that. It's not that we are, because we uh, read his books in Alice in Wonderland, then we are excusing his uh, behaviors, which remain abhorrent and appalling, but his book remains a great book. So his story remains a great story. So that's the thing. Morality is different. That's, that's my problem. Mixing the good with the beautiful. They are not the same thing. But um, again, uh, the exhibition was not focusing on giving... Well, there was a little bit of a moral judgment towards values and ideas of Hogarth, but it was more about the actual paintings, depiction, analysis, which I felt was shifting from technique or maybe arrangement, composition, narrative towards uh, social hierarchy, meanings, oppression, uh, trade. Yeah, yeah, but you see, that's the thing. Uh, we have been talking a few minutes now about Hogarth and we didn't mention anything about the way in which he represents and what he innovates. We have always been talking about yeah. the society of his time when art is so art is art, not when it really represents uh, the uh, contingencies of the history, but when it's able to go past the contingencies Absolutely. of history. So we are narrowing all that we could say about, about a great artist. We are narrowing it to the, to, uh, almost as if he was a documentarist. Almost if that, that's the one thing that was great about him. It's like Caravaggio. It's like removing from Caravaggio all the work he did on light and on choosing uh, an, it completely innovative models and reducing it to representing the time in which he lived. That's not the point. The point, the greatness of Caravaggio, the greatness of Shakespeare, the greatness of, uh, of all the geniuses and masters of the arts is that they are able to, uh, to launch messages that overcome time. So it's not, their value is not to be found in the documentaristic approach to their own reality, but to their ability to convey messages that once stripped off of their contingencies and their own reality they still signify something broader and bigger does it make sense yeah no absolutely i, I actually think it's a shame because uh, maybe hogarth wasn't the most technical painter but uh, he depicted a lot of scenes of contemporary life fashion and interiors and i felt like uh because of the way exhibition was curated and communicated, I didn't pay enough of attention to beautiful embroideries on dresses uh, the sitters in his paintings would wear. I didn't look at interiors from the perspective of what was the aesthetics, the style, the symbolism of that time. But I thought, oh, all these objects were imported from this slave trade and that slave trade. I felt... Uh, the narrative of the experience of an exhibition shifted from actual understanding of 18th century, not only from societal perspective, but also through aesthetic and visual part, because look, art is super visual. Our culture is incredibly visual. I felt it has taken it to some sort of identity politics narrative yeah. again, rather than actually talking about pure art and visual symbolism, not necessary teaching us a particular lesson. Uh, so yeah, um, I guess it's very, very challenging time. And it's not only like one art institution. 
I think it uh, translates into fashion, into education, into art. It's everywhere where some sort of a message has been communicated. Even uh, just off topic, I heard of a recent advertisement for um, Metropolitan Police. And it's not saying about what sort of career you can get there or the benefit of being part of a community. It's all about helping the community. It's all about identities of individual uh, mat officers who work there. And we all present them like, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, uh, I'm, I'm gay. And it's kind of reductive of what this job is about. And actually, you know, standing... What about I'm good at my job? What about that? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I, I, it's very funny. A friend of mine was sending me. You don't me, have to be good anymore. You, just you have, don't have to be. You, you have, have to, to be identify. Gay. You don't have to be good. You have to be either a woman or homosexual. So I had uh, recently a, <laughs> a job offer was sent to me, and uh, and it was like they were, my friend said, "Look at this. It's it's interesting." And it was an interesting position, but they were uh, in essentially the. Bottom line is that as a homosexual, I would have had more uh, easy access to the job. And then I thought, hold on a minute, I've never been discriminated in any job on the basis of my sexual orientation. Nobody asked me, nobody cared. It's not Caravaggio so, Times anymore. So I have an advantage <laughs> in, in London. I mean, I'm talking about London, I'm not talking about Afghanistan. I have an advantage. But I. I over somebody else, but I did never have suffered for to find a job based on that. Maybe based on I don't know other things. Yes, I I have other disadvantages, like for instance the fact that I am not the English is not my first language and I'm, 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 and I'm not British. That's my disadvantage. If I have to point at something, but not my sexual orientation, so there is no point in giving me an advantage for that. Given that this has never been a disadvantage, does it make sense? But now yeah. everything is reduced. To that not because it helps me but because it makes them look good yeah but also uh, it does not really highlight the sense of unity i think it actually if anything else it kind of says what uh, you have to identify by default to be able to function these days and it it reduces the idea of having unity and working towards common good or improving the processes we have in place. Yeah. And I think this is something which uh, especially uh, public services such as police should be about. It's about of finding the best common ground of how our society can function rather than saying uh, they have quotas for a particular type of employees within their portfolio. So here's my challenge, obviously, obviously. Is it for me? <laughs> no, not for you, for society. Uh, because I, uh, I think we agree on this. I suspect. Uh, obviously, I do want um, that everybody has the same opportunities, opportunities of, um, I mean, I do believe in equality of opportunity, of course, not equality of outcome, but for many reasons. What about equality of effort? Exactly, equality of opportunities, and then you, you make this all the same effort in order to... Yeah, but I think also, you know, the element uh, of opportunity should be equal to everyone, but also... Uh, 
everyone puts different effort into the opportunity yeah. we are given. Yeah. I think this is also the aspect we forget about. Yeah, Because some That's people uh, really try super hard. We make a lot of effort. We really want to make some difference. We want to develop something. Regardless, like it, it could be something grandiose and it could be on the local level. But I guess if we reduce it only to opportunity, it does not let individuals who actually want to put more effort to be recognized as well. Yeah, my point is uh, to, uh, that Sorry, we yeah, should we should make everything possible to remove any, any uh, sort of. Um, uh, problems or any hindrances any obstacles to anyone accessing whatever their personal characteristics are accessing a job of course of course without expecting this that this uh, generates an equality of outcomes uh, necessarily okay um but for many reasons that probably we don't have now time to, to but we can we can dedicate a segment to this equality of outcomes and equality of opportunity my point is though that you will reach diversity as a side effect a marvelous beautiful side effect if you will judge based on merit because merit will select the best it will not select the privileged and the best are split, I guess, equally pretty much in every culture, pretty much in every gender, pretty much in every orientation, in every race. So they will emerge naturally if you put merit at the very uh, sort of uh, at the very center of your quest rather than identities. Because otherwise you will have people who are hired because of their identity and people who are hired because they're good. And, and, and your employer will always see this difference and that will not benefit any minority. That will only benefit the people who were hired for merit. Well, speaking of representation, identities, and to some extent minorities, which probably not such a minority in the country we're going to talk about, but... Um, so recently we read a fashion article uh, about the ban of effeminate men in China. This is part of a new direction law which emerged earlier this autumn. So it's not like a new news in the essence of what it has been communicated to society. But now probably is the time when fashion taking its time to try to unravel for ourselves what it's going to mean and how it will reflect uh, brand communications, directions, and image. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, they have, uh, they have banned effeminate men, uh, especially some celebrities, like a boy, I think. Oh, they criticize, they criticize males who use too much makeup, and they uh, sort of banned a boy who wore some, some rabbit Years in an Instagram video or in a video, um, so um, I mean the, the usual things that we have been seeing from 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 certain countries. So it doesn't surprise me uh, that much. It saddens me. It doesn't surprise me. What surprised me was another thing: was the reaction of the West to this sort of news. That really surprised me, because on the one hand. Uh, because I didn't see all these uprises, especially in fashion brands. Fashion brands uh, did not complain about this, uh, or even or even the media, such as, for instance, Diet Prada. I didn't see barricades and and critiques and 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 um, critical pieces about this this very repressive law in China. 
What I saw though was that a couple of weeks ago in Italy there has been a law. Um, the uh, it was called the DDL uh, ZAN, a law that has been rejected by the the Senate of of the country because essentially it was a law that punished with heavier um, sort of sentences people who attacked uh, individuals for their uh, sexual orientation and for other reasons as well, not only sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, the law didn't pass, but it didn't pass because our senators are necessarily homophobic or transphobic. Some of them are, of course, but you find them everywhere. But the majority of them did not want the law because the law was very badly written, extremely badly written, and it opened for the introduction of categories in the Italian system that do not exist yet uh, because they are very new, so they could not be, they, they shouldn't be introduced so quickly into into law. And also because um, it, there, are, there were un, unsolved issues of freedom of speech. Now, the point is, obviously, it's a very important law that should be made at some point, but I wish for a law that is well written, okay, and that puts together the entire parliament, not just, not just the left, for instance, which, as it was in this case. Now, I'm bringing this up because after this law has been rejected by the Senate, the, all the um, influencers have spoken about it, Chiara Ferragni, a lot, uh, Pierpaolo Piccioli, uh, Alessandro Michele, and even Diet Prada dedicated a post, a very grim, uh, catastrophic post. But missing the point, because hold on a minute. Yes, this law didn't pass, but this does not mean that you cannot be a trans or a homosexual in Italy. You can even, you can even uh, marry or at least create civil partnerships. If you are a transsexual, you can change sex since 1981, I believe. Uh, so, uh, with a very good law, by the way. So, it's not that you are endangered if you are a homosexual, but the overall narrative was that it was dangerous to be a homosexual in Italy, which is absolutely not the case, because you cannot be attacking the street for any reason, okay? Not n for any reason. So, notwithstanding, the narrative was extremely catastrophic, but in comparison to China, that is that was nothing. So I didn't see the same barricades being made with, with uh, about about the Chinese situation, and that was very very indicative, I think, of how um, of how people, activists, and especially fashion brands, weirdly on the same side, are are moving. Okay, they criticize what is criticizable. This is not revolution. Is that the revolution is not to criticize what you can criticize, it's to criticize what you should not criticize. And this demonstrates how phony, uh, in some cases, their, uh, their approach to these uh, issues are, as if the, um, the uh, identity questions were only relevant in, uh, in the West, but they are not relevant in China. They can happen there, we will not talk about it. And the funny thing that that I found extremely fascinating is that the Chinese government said to the media, you should avoid portraying um, effeminate men and you should, in the, they said sissy men, the, the word was sissy men, the translation of the word sissy, and you should go for more tradi Chinese traditional males. And I was like, hold on a minute, but was the Communist Party 
not precisely destroying tradition in favor of revolution, was a cultural revolution not precisely wiping tradition away and wiping hierarchies and old uh, sort of uh, <laughs> sort of aristocracy. They even wiped away great tradition like the tradition of waving silk in China and other similar things. And now you want to reestablish tradition only. <laughs> for gender roles, isn't this a little bit counter-revolutionary, counter sort of the opposite of what you have been doing until now, isn't that? Yeah, it's uh, a little bit kind of counterintuitive. We're saying we want to promote traditional uh, masculine aesthetic, simultaneously embracing new socialist values, and we even say advanced values, it all does not make sense. And I also think it questions a um, bigger part of a whole Asian market overall, which is probably influenced by K-pop and the idea yeah. of visual aesthetics of fat genre. It's super specific. I guess it could be described as this effeminate man. So when uh, is China trying also to kind of neglect the huge influence Korea has on their visual culture and pop influence as well. It's, I guess, something similar which happened with video game ban, which they put like oh, yeah. new restrictions on how long uh, people can play video games for. So trying to um, control society in a different ways, which... Uh, I, I don't know if I even controllable at this point because it's so widely acceptable, so uh, available, and you can still find this content everywhere. To how, to what extent you can really challenge that? And then, yeah, absolutely, what you're saying about how West is presenting China as an example is very particular, and. I guess I could relate to this coming from Russia. It is very similar. Yeah. Everything which happens um, on the across the border, you know, on the other side of the world, is almost painted in this very white brush strokes of being good and bad, um, people having no freedom, no opportunities. And of course, there are a lot of limitations, but I think it's also very much about how you present it. And probably even this law, maybe it's not that dramatic. It's probably just government narrative, which were communicating in China as some sort of ideal and aspiration. But I imagine a lot of young people will probably don't even register it as much. It's probably more or less the same. I think here, potentially, we are jumping on this uh, narrative more because it enables us to impose itself as the uh, lead um, you know free world um, um, establishment which gives people an opportunity to have any identity whereas everywhere in the world you will be limited and to some extent maybe this news are presented to us in a way to just reestablish values here and saying what whatever we have in the West is the best mode of operation as you know, just as it is recorded. But is it like this? I guess we probably often have very, very uh, blurred ideas about what is actual situation in other countries because we don't live there 
and we could probably never understand and we have this very specific on the surface ideas yeah yeah i i completely hear what you're saying yes uh, i i still don't understand why we are so ready to judge our own past with today's morality but we are not we um the same people who would judge our past with our current moralities uh, refrain, refrain from uh, from judging uh, distant uh, countries w with our own can values uh, within the same um, time yeah, in, in the same time. That's that's very peculiar, um, and I'm not saying it's wrong because I do think that you should you should apply relative uh, sort of judgments. You cannot judge everything by a single standard, of course. But why is the historical uh, thing different. After all, is the past not just a different country in many ways? Um, so, uh, so the two things between about the museums and these, I think, link somehow. I always wonder why in 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 certain countries uh, like Russia. We were talking about Russia last time and China this time, and so we have great friends abroad, I suppose. Like that we will be attacked by... No, very soon. Uh, no, <laughs> I wonder why... <laughs> I wonder why these countries um, are not... They are progressing from the point of view of finance and economy. And we have always believed in the West that liberalism is what uh, empowers the individual and, and makes the economy grow. And they are managing very well to empower the economy without empowering the individual, which is very peculiar. So I wonder why this, and I think my answer is that these countries are so big and so diverse that the only way to maintain the current power is to be uh, so somehow very controlling and very repressive and to limit uh, the uh, any uh, individual inclination because uh, the uh, the power needs to be imposed from above equally to everyone that's uh, that's my explanation i don't know if i am um, wrong mm, but yeah i mean the, f the future will tell i mean you should know <laughs> I, no, I think I think what you're saying is quite applicable to Russia. I, you know, haven't lived in China, wouldn't know that. But yes, Russia is huge, very diverse, difficult to apply uh, some sort of uh, unique rules to each region because when it causes a lot of corruption and inequalities, so when you have uh, this sort of uh, top level. Um, very rigid control system i guess it enables country to function in uh, maybe not in the best way but at least to function and yes this is why they probably go for this mode but something which i also took away from this article about the feminine man is how china is saying what uh, vulgar influences and celebrities should not be allowed on media and i thought what a funny uh, word to use vulgar it's so uh, subjective what is vulgar to one person what is vulgar to another to some uh, you know the actual government could be super vulgar so i think it again opens this conversation about how the rules regulations and especially government trying to control social media trying to control entertainment industry it's a little bit uh, of a losing game to begin with because 
entertainment in a way it's supposed to be vulgar because yeah. this is a popular culture and uh, you're trying to bring some sort of a high culture and moral values into the most common uh, source of society joy you're not gonna impose with new standards because entertainment requires some sort of ability to actually appeal to a wide range of people and it does not have to be complicated because the moment it gets complicated it requires very different approach to the consumption of any media information so in a way i feel you know any government could it even you know, even if we have any laws here, which try to, or even art exhibitions, to bring back the Hogarth experience, when they try to bring some sort of a moral lesson uh, to us, I think it cancels the actual joy of going and seeing art and enjoying any element of our culture, uh, because um, we see it as an entertainment. And when we've been schooled during trying to experience entertainment it's not pleasurable anymore and therefore it becomes something else yeah um it's very interesting what you're mentioning about the vulgar being very subjective first of all let's not forget that the word vulgar comes from vulgus which is the people so it means popular, essentially. Even Italian, so the evolution of Latin was called, by Dante, was called the vulgar language, because it was the language of the people. So vulgar is not necessarily a bad word. We should reconsider vulgarity. God bless vulgarity. Anyhow, um, it's, it, it sort of echoes uh, the uh, idea of, for instance, trigger warnings in the West and also this uh, sort of rejection of anything that is offensive uh, in the West. You know, you should, there should be laws uh, like, the, for instance, the hate speech laws often um, uh, punish offensive sort of um, speech. Hold on a minute. Isn't it the same thing, though, as vulgarity for China? The, what you're saying is offense not very deeply individual. So something you say could offend me just because it doesn't meet my system of values. So there, there is there isn't a single way of uh, sort of of sort of um, assessing offense because offense is different from everyone. If I mean, I, I'm an atheist, and I'm offended when people uh, when people think that uh, certain things are sins. And I am aware that my saying that I'm an atheist and I do not believe in any god offends, for instance, Catholics. So, isn't offense something deeply, uh, deeply um, personal? You cannot prevent offense because offense is inbuilt in the freedom of speech. I have the freedom to offend you. I do have it because it's in my freedom of speech. Having said that, my right to offend you does not equal my duty to offend you. I believe I have a right to offend. I don't believe I have the duty to offend and I will never intentionally do it. But it's important that the law allows me to because of what you were saying, because it's personal, like vulgarity. In the same way, I want the right to be vulgar, and I think I'm succeeding at it. I think it's a sin to deprive people from the opportunity to express their thoughts, ideas freely, and uh, project their vulgarity 
as much as we'd like to. Yes, yes, vulgarity. Forever and ever. That's why I love Donatella. <laughs>